Welcome to the Western Vowel Podcast Series, with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of this series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Being Where We Are, Grounding Spiritual Teaching in the Body. It was given by Bandu Dunham on October 16th, 2021, via Zoom. Bandu first encountered the spiritual path as a teenager. He is author of the book, Creative Life, and an internationally recognized glass artist and teacher. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Bandu Dunham. So I wanted to talk about embodiment. We came up with this title, uh, Grounding Spiritual Teaching in the Body, but the overarching theme of embodiment, I think, is um, it's pretty big. I mean, we can only cover a little piece of it tonight, this idea of what it means to embody something, to bring an idea into physical reality, and also to manifest something within ourselves. So this idea of embodiment, like bringing something into physical manifestation, including ourselves. I've got a lot of material. I've got a lot of quotes, each one of which can really be unpacked. I first wanted to acknowledge that talking about embodiment is pretty ironic, especially on the internet, right? So talking about embodying something physically while we're on the internet, maybe uh, an enterprise doomed to failure from the beginning, but as is always the case with these talks, it's just a matter of giving you something to chew on that may serve your process, uh, however you define your process to be. So I'm going to talk a lot about art because that's kind of my field. But these ideas apply really to all spiritual practice and, frankly, to life in general. That's one of the reasons why I'm really so fond of Robert Henry, who is a painter and um, uh, teacher of art, first part of the 20th century. He wrote some really great things, comments and letters and talks he gave those things and some notes from his students were compiled in a book called The Art Spirit. Really, everyone should read this book, and you'll see why as we go through some of these quotes. I also wanted to talk about the goal, the goal of the talk, okay? Very important, goal of the talk. So this is about Suzuki Roshi, comments by some of his students in a book called Zen is Right Now. Student talking here, he said, Suzuki said that if we don't have a goal in our practice, we will feel lost. But if we do have a goal, we will actually be lost. So rather than have a goal, he taught us to live with a vow to continue our practice forever. I just thought that was really great. <laughs> it may be self-explanatory, but just to say a little bit about that, when we create a goal, it tends to be something rigid that we're striving for. In fourth-way work, they talk about the difference between a goal and an aim. An aim is a direction you're going in. A goal is a specific end result you're looking for. And uh, to live with a vow to continue to practice forever. Of course, that's the bodhisattva vow that they're talking about there. 
Um, and then another one of my favorite quotes here, this is sort of the context of the talk. Uh, this is from Robert Henry. It says, art appears in many forms. To some degree, every human being is an artist, dependent on the quality of his growth. Art need not be intended. It comes inevitably as the tree from the root, the branch from the trunk, the blossom from the twig. None of these forget the present in looking backward or forward. They are occupied wholly with the fulfillment of their own existence. The branch does not boast of the relation it bears to its great ancestor, the trunk, and does not claim attention to itself for this honor, nor does it call your attention to the magnificent red apple it is about to bear. Because it is engaged in the full play of its own existence, because it is full in its own growth, its fruit is inevitable. So he's saying that if we're really living what might be called a wholehearted way or with full attention to our aim in the present moment, then naturally art is going to manifest out of that. Art or something like it. (laughs) So maybe spiritual practice or um, some expression of enlightened mind or just being present. So that idea, I want it to be really fundamental to the direction we're going tonight. So this idea of embodiment, I want to contrast that with a, a mental grasp. It's interesting the word, we use the word grasp because in Eastern philosophy, they talk a lot about grasping and how that undermines real understanding and uh, experience in life because we're grasping for things. So a mental grasp makes you feel like you've got something, like you got it, the idea. And it's satisfying like having a possession in the same way a possession is satisfying. But as in many cases with possessions, sometimes it can actually be you who has end up being possessed. You know, we think we have all these possessions, but really they, they possess us. And I think the same is true of the possession of uh, having a mental grasp on concepts about spiritual life, about um, enlightenment, about artistic practice. Those ideas can possess us in a way that may or may not be useful, probably not. So reading and study only have value when they're incorporated into our behavior or incarnated. Embodiment is in some ways subtler and less satisfying to ego, but more substantial than having a mental grasp. And one of the things my teacher always said about He was very critical of the internet (laughs) and he was critical of a lot of modern technology in general because it tends to dumb people down or can. And one of the things he said about the internet, actually more generally about the ready availability of spiritual teachings in the modern age, because there's books, even before the internet, there's books everywhere. It's very easy to find people who will teach you what used to be very esoteric spiritual teachings or practices that you had to really earn in a traditional way. And he said that the superficial mental satisfaction of getting an idea, feeling like we understand it, keeps us from actually letting the idea go into the body, you know, letting that teaching go into the body, letting that insight go into the body and be incorporated into ourselves, ideally, into our body structure 
in some way. The mind likes to grab ideas and hold them as a possession. And that was one of the obstacles he said he had to work with a lot as a teacher in working with students, that he needed to present things in a way that would be a little bit confounding to the mind. He's not the only teacher that ever did this. It's actually probably pretty common practice among spiritual teachers to present ideas in ways that, to some extent, bypass the mind so that the mind is not quite sure what's going on. Maybe the mind is a little bit off kilter, or, you know, confused by something that was expressed. But the teaching, the transmission, the energy of that communication can actually go into the body and where it can do some good. Yeah, so the mind likes to pursue satisfaction, the satisfaction of owning, possessing something. And we can see that one of the long-term results of that showing up in the way our technology creates or rewards a certain kind of desire for stimulation. And also the merging of our modern technology, like Zoom, (laughs) and the profit motive, the corporate profit motive, that gives us situations like what we've seen with Facebook, with what's going on and so many things that we're being manipulated by outside of our own essential self. So I should probably say what I mean by embodiment. I think most of us probably have an idea but just to talk a little bit about terms. So what do I mean by embodiment? So there's a number of different domains to it. One of them is bringing something into expression or manifestation. I think ideally that's something maybe from another realm, a higher realm or some other dimension of reality or perception, bringing that into the physical world so that it can be communicated to people, shared with people, or just to make it more substantial for ourselves. I have some insight and meditation. I need to bring that into manifestation or it's just insight. They have a saying, don't they have a saying in the Landmark Forum that yesterday's insight is today's ego trip. That's certainly an example of that. Again, that's how the mind works. The mind takes things as a possession, claims it, keeps it from getting integrated into the body so that instead of becoming something really useful, it can become an ego trip. Whereas in the moment when it's the fresh insight, and maybe it can stir us to stir us to action. We integrate it the right way. Also, in terms of embodiment, being fully present in or inhabiting the body. If you just Google incarnation or inhabiting the body, you will get a whole bunch of responses, results having to do with yoga philosophy and mindfulness practice and you know, different kinds of psychotherapy and all sorts of things about inhabiting the body. So there's a lot to be said about that and a lot of people saying it. I probably don't need to say too much about it. But both those things that I was talking about, bringing something into manifestation or expression like through a creative act and also being fully present in the body, both of those have to do with what you might call grounding, grounding of an energy. You know, an energy that might be considered a higher energy, a subtler energy, something more refined and bringing that into physical manifestation, which is what artists do all the time, one way or another. So there's this famous quote from Thierry de Chardin, which is that we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. So that's another principle about incarnation or embodiment, that we are having a human experience that's part of our greater experience as spiritual beings necessarily in touch with all those other dimensions. 
but the uh, the context of our human experience is that it sits within that bigger picture. It reminds me of a saying that I heard from a fourth way teacher, which is the difference between viewing the world from the perspective of the work and viewing the work from the perspective of the world. The work being spiritual work, and the world being in this context, the world being sort of the conventional view of the world. Three-dimensional reality, nothing much beyond that to be seen or worried about. So you can either look at the world from the perspective of the work, which is kind of like what uh, what Jesus called being in the world, but not of the world, something like that, to my understanding. To be present in the world, doing whatever worldly things we have to do, you know, we have to make a living and do all those other things that we do in the world, but we can view that from the perspective of our spiritual work. Even if we're committed to spiritual practice, it's very easy to slip into, and this is what the expression comes from, really, having a sort of worldly perspective on our practice. So that even if you're involved in a spiritual community or monastery or something where everyone's engaged in a spiritual practice and they're doing that together, it can even start to become conventional and start to bring conventional perspectives into that, where rather than transcending interpersonal difficulties or my personal opinions about other people and stuff. I enter a spiritual environment and I'm going to participate. But then after a while, I somehow managed to kind of bring the things that I've always had with me in my life, my baggage, you might say, or just my own perspective and opinions, bring that with me, my same attitudes. So that after a while, I've recreated the world that I grew up in by virtue of the attitudes I have about the people I'm surrounded with. So here's a quote from Osho, otherwise known as Rajneesh. So this is a quote from him, his book on creativity. The creative person is one who brings something from the unknown into the world of the known, who brings something from God into the world, who helps God to utter something, who becomes a hollow bamboo and allows God to flow through him. How can you become a hollow bamboo? If you are too full of the mind, you cannot become a hollow bamboo. And creativity is from the creator. Creativity is not from you, of you, or from you. You disappear. Then creativity is when the creator takes possession of you. The real creators know it perfectly well that they are not the creators, they were just instrumental. They were mediums. Something happened through them, true, but they are not the doers of it. So that's another way of describing this idea of bringing something into manifestation, bringing something from what we might call a higher dimension or a higher realm, higher state of awareness, subtler dimension, probably a lot of ways you could describe it, bringing that into physical manifestations. That's our job as artists. And in some sense, you could certainly describe spiritual practice that way too. If you're involved in a spiritual practice, even just meditating on your own, yoga practice, anything, whatever it might be for you, you're bringing something even just into your own life, regardless of whether other people even know about it. But you're bringing something finer, something richer, more enlightened, more alive into your own life. You're bringing that into manifestation. And if you do it enough, 
starts to leak into other people's manifestation, leak into your broader world, and then maybe has some value beyond your own benefit, which I think ultimately is what it's all about. The real creators know it perfectly well that they are not the creators. They were just instrumental. They were mediums. Something happened through them, true, but they are not the doers of it. That's like straight out of the Bhagavad Gita or something, isn't it? The Upanishads, you know, you are not the doer of your own actions. It seems like there isn't common understanding about how to bring spiritual principles into the body, how that actually happens, how to bring compassion or attention to life in us. It's just kind of a mysterious process of how transformation happens. I don't know, it's not linear. So how do you bring those kinds of spiritual attributes into the body? It's a rhetorical question. My personal experience is that meditation really helps with that a lot. Maybe not in the first 20 years, but <laughs> you know, if you stick with it long enough, I think these things start to ground themselves in the body if you practice meditation. Now, I think to some large degree, that's just because the resistances to those things get broken down over time. I think part of the reason we're in this physical world is that the passage of time is required for some of these things to show up. If we weren't going to deal with time, we'd just be born in some heaven realm somewhere and be blissful, you know, spiritual beings having a non-human experience, right? So the idea of this human experience is to deal with all the things that are here. So the passage of time and the accumulation of experience, I mean, how do you ground compassion in the body? Sometimes you develop compassion by witnessing or experiencing suffering. Sometimes that's what it takes. I think there are teachings that can help us. We have resistance to these principles of compassion and so on and service. We resist these things out of a sort of misinformed self-interest. So I think the breakdown of the resistance is what's crucial. You could say that about enlightenment, couldn't you? I mean, enlightenment is already present. The only reason we don't experience it, manifest enlightenment, is because we have some kind of resistance to it. We're blocking it. We're not looking at it. We're, you know, we're obscuring it somehow. So I think a lot of what goes on is the breaking down of resistance. And meditation is one of the things that does that. And life experience sometimes, shocks, all these principles that are talked about in different forms of spiritual work, they lead to these things being grounded in the body. But a lot of it's up to us in, in terms of how much resistance we manifest. And we have to first become conscious of what that resistance is. Become conscious of that resistance. We need to be practicing self-observation or something like it. Either self-observation or having ourselves pounded over the head with information in the form of shocking experience. So in the absence of spiritual practice, I think life will teach us these things by clobbering us over the head in various ways. I think it's in our best interest to learn how to cultivate some of these things and to mitigate, if not eliminate, our resistance to, to these principles. The title of the talk is Being Where We Are. I do feel resistance to being where, where we are. And why is that? Because I notice that my attention is not right here, right now, most of the time. Then I realize that, and I kind of come back. What is the resistance to that? Well, I have an opinion. Well, yeah, but (laughs) (laughs) this talks about bringing it into the body. But I think on some level, we're afraid to realize that we don't exist in the way that we think we do. We think 
we are a solid self that has these boundaries that are tangible and clearly defined. When in fact, we're both much more and much less than that. And it's a little threatening to be confronted with that. And to truly be present in the moment reveals that, reveals that we're not such solid characters as we think we are. I think that resistance is secondary. I think that the bigger issue is ignorance. If we weren't ignorant of the situation, we would realize that all resistance is futile. Yeah. And there may be a gradual process of resisting and pounding your head on the wall until you realize that resistance is futile and get with the program, surrender. Thank you. I think that's a good point, except I would speculate that most of the people coming to a talk like this can't quite claim ignorance. I think we've had glimpses. And once you have the glimpse, then it gets complicated because that's when our resistance starts coming up. So I think in principle, what you said is true, but I think we may be a little further down the road in that we've had glimpses of it. We're not so ignorant anymore. And now, this is what I find for myself, I think it's true of a lot of people, is I'm actively resisting on some level. As I consider what we're talking about, I think that most of the time when I'm not present, I'm not really aware of it so much all the time, but in some way I'm trying to substantiate myself. We're always trying to do that, the Buddhists would say, I think. We're always trying to substantiate our existence. There's a resistance to reality, just being with what is. That's kind of fundamental, it seems, to being human and having a mind that separates like this and identifying. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. We are trying to punch our way out of this paper bag that we've put ourselves in. Yeah. I think it's when you have consciousness localized in the body as it is, maybe in dreams it goes off, but it's localized in the body. So it's going to be very hard to, you know, I am a process, I'm a verb, not a noun. But anyway, as long as it's localized in the body, it's it's a very powerful thing that's going to not make other ideas seem real. They're just going to be ideas compared to this body. As we identify with the body. All right, let's talk about some ways we'll maybe get beyond it. (laughs) You know, there's a saying that the only way out is through, right? So it may be that by fully embracing the manifestation of consciousness in the body, we will mm, see past the limits of that. That's what some people seem to be saying. Not here tonight, but some teachers have said, I believe. All right, here's another quote. I'm going to get back to my hero, Robert Henry. He was a painter, a painter mostly of portraits. Taught a lot of students about painting. But the things he says about painting uh, and about art in general are just so applicable to life. I just get goosebumps. I think this is so great. So he says, all manifestations of art are but landmarks in the progress of the human spirit toward a thing, but as yet sensed and far from being possessed. The man who has honesty, integrity, the love of inquiry, the desire to see beyond, is ready to appreciate good art. 
He needs no one to give him an art education. He is already qualified. He needs but to see pictures with his active mind. Look into them for the things that belong to him, and he will find soon enough in himself an art connoisseur and an art lover of the first order. That's just so liberating. A conventional perspective on being an art connoisseur is that you have to develop perhaps an affected posture of appreciation. And there's this sort of aloof cleverness that people think they need to cultivate to understand art. And he's making it very direct and very simple. And in fact, I think everyone who appreciates art to any degree has this impulse, this impulse to just appreciate art for what it is. But then there's all this stuff due to societal pressure and primarily to the influence of money in the art world. I'm sorry, but it's true. Money, money, money. That's what basically corrupts the appreciation of art. And then art becomes another possession that people want to have. And everything goes to hell from there. I'm going to read this quote again. All manifestations of art are but landmarks in the progress of the human spirit toward a thing but as yet sensed and far from being possessed. The man who has honesty, integrity, the love of inquiry, the desire to see beyond, is ready to appreciate good art. He needs no one to give him an art education. He is already qualified. He needs but to see pictures with his active mind. Look into them for the things that belong to him, and he will find soon enough in himself an art connoisseur and an art lover of the first order. Is it clear how this relates to spiritual practice or spiritual study, the appreciation of spiritual texts? Just substitute spiritual texts or spiritual teachings for art, and maybe it makes just as much sense. Robert Henry, he says, There is no end to the study of technique. Yet more important than the lifelong study of technique is the lifelong self-education. In fact, technique can only be used properly by those who have definite purpose in what they do. And it is only they who invent technique. Otherwise, it is the work of parrots. You can do anything you want to do. What is rare is the actual wanting to do a specific thing, wanting it so much that you are practically blind to all other things, that nothing else will satisfy you. When you, body and soul, wish to make a certain expression and cannot be distracted from this one desire, then you will be able to make a great use of whatever technical knowledge you have. You will have clairvoyance. You will see the uses of technique you already have, and you will invent more. An artist has got to get acquainted with himself just as much as he can. It is no easy job, for it is not a present-day habit of humanity. This is what I call self-development, self-education. No matter how fine a school you are in, you have to educate yourself. There is nothing more entertaining than to have a frank talk with yourself. Few do it, frankly. Educating yourself is getting acquainted with yourself. Find out what you really like if you can. Find out what is really important to you. 
Then sing your song. You will have something to sing about, and your whole heart will be in the singing. When a man is full up with what he is talking about, he handles such language as he has with a mastery unusual to him. And it is at such times that he learns language. Ooh, isn't that great? He's talking about painting technique, but he can directly map it over to spiritual practice and to life lived with passion. You know, invention is a theme that's often talked about in spiritual work and just being able to invent something. And this is exactly how you do it by having a specific passion for something that you want to accomplish. And that, that desire, you know, that aim may not always be something you can even, can even put in words. You know, what is, what is my aim? I mean, it's helpful to put it in words, but sometimes there are, you enter spaces where you can't really define what it is you've got to express. But it's there, you know, it's a song waiting to be sung. And we can't do it if we don't direct a focus to achieving this end. It otherwise just remains sort of vague. And Now, when a man is full up with what he is talking about, he handles such language as he has with a mastery unusual to him. And it is at such times that he learns language. You could say that about meditation, couldn't you? You say that about martial arts? You had that experience of just being passionate about something to the point where you're better at it than you have a right to be? I've had that experience. Yeah? Yep. With the plotting mysteries, it kind of takes over. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. So that writing process. Well, plotting process is more accurate. Yeah. Yeah, because that's a specific skill, isn't it? There's things you got to consider in that. Totally. There's a whole, like, mapping process and diagramming it's just mm. like i really love flow charts and diagrams and it really comes out in being able to plot mysteries that's a very attractive state to be in when you're really consumed with your passion yeah that's a dilemma i think artists have especially in the performing arts performing arts especially because you're creating something i mean maybe it gets recorded but really it's for the people present in that space when the performance is happening. But yeah, even in visual arts, creating tangible objects, artists, I think, struggle with that because you get into this state where you're in the creative flow. And then how do you maintain that? It may be that it's not meant to be maintained, or it might be that the greatest artists are those who maintain it the most for the longest or the most frequently. But I think a lot of what artists go through is trying to recreate or intensify or stabilize that state. It's like in that U2 song where he says, every artist is a cannibal, every poet is a thief. We all kill our inspiration and then sing about our grief. It's a, it's a dilemma. Yeah. Like when you're a child, so I'm working with children. <laughs> so what was very important that children do something and they have the, all the time of the world to do the things what they need to do when they are completely focused. Children have this in themselves, this focusing. But you need to let them in their time to finish this. Yeah, there is a time when they 
go on the playground and they they go up and down the slide 100 million times. <laughs> so you think, oh my God, yeah. But the body needs that to incorporate, embody this movement at this time. Mm. And at one point, the child will stop, turn around, and then it will slide down one time and go to the next thing. But it finishes this thing. And I think to finish something is an art to move on then to the next thing. For myself, it's very important. Go with the flow and not be stuck in something. It's like not about the product because the child is not concerned about the product, but it's like closing like a cycle. Yeah. And it's a cycle of life. And this is the cycle of doing. Yeah, I think those impulses that children have to pursue something almost obsessively for some period of time, they're wanting to understand something about it or integrate something about it. And they know when they've got it. It becomes very clear to them. And then they're ready to leave this slide and go to the swing or something. They're like exploring something, letting something come to a, a natural fruition. Because the body knows. The body knows when it's got it. I was wondering if you could say anything about how commitment fits into the creative process. Maybe commitment to the muse or commitment to serve something to the creative process. Well, there's probably different levels on which you could consider commitment. There's a physical commitment of just putting in time and practice, which is a very basic but very valuable. Tony Bennett, who is a, also a painter, as well as a singer, and a big fan of Robert Henry, at 95, he finally retired from publicly performing, right? Tony Bennett. But all the time he was performing, and maybe still so, I don't know, he said he always practiced his scales every day. You know, da, 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 da. I can't do it. But, you know, practicing scales to warm up your voice and keep your voice limber. And he did that throughout his whole career, which lasted until he's 95. So there's something to be said for that very basic level of commitment. You know, partly because what it does, it does keep your vocal cords kind of limber to keep doing that. But also it's just you're making a stand, you're communicating to the universe that you're serious about this and you are just going to persist. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether you get to be Tony Bennett or whether you never get to be Tony Bennett. You just practicing in your scales as part of your practice. So there's that level of commitment that's just very basic. And if you're, I'm sure any kind of performing art, like a dancer or whatever, I mean, dancers, my God, you've got to stay in shape. There's that level of commitment that's just necessary for the physical instrument to be in the right condition to produce what it needs to produce. And then there's also a more passionate kind of commitment, kind of like that quote was talking about, where you're a little bit obsessed. And a lesser manifestation is not going to be satisfactory. You know, you've got to produce this thing, express this thing. And that's a commitment. It's like a fire burning within you, hot coal burning in your throat or a fire in the belly or whatever kind of metaphor you want to use. In some sense, I think, that kind of commitment is not even a choice. We're born with a destiny and we come to understand or recognize that destiny to hear it calling. 
perhaps with a soft, gentle voice, perhaps with a very loud and demanding voice. But we're, we're called to something, to a passion that we have to express. It might, be, it might be an art form. It might be spiritual practice. It sounds kind of silly that you can be passionately committed to sitting on a pillow for long periods of time without moving. <laughs> you know, but that's, that's a passion of many people in spiritual practice. Um, and it, it takes passion to do that. I mean, if you've ever meditated for more than 15 minutes, you know, there's a certain passion that's necessary to stick with it. And just to, just to be present and even just to be physically present. It's something that comes from within and it's also something to be cultivated. So maybe it's paradoxical or that commitment becomes paradoxical. Well, a lot of times when there's commitment, it seems to something, I mean, really profound commitment to something, it's, it seems to me like it's goal-oriented. There's something that we want to do. We have some end result that we're trying to achieve. And then once that happens, there's a letdown. Performing arts is kind of like that when people have a run of a show and it's so high and you're so into it, you're like one with the experience even. And then when that's done, just mundane you have the ex- then you have the experience of impermanence. Absolutely. Yay. And it seems like spiritual obsession is pretty rare. <laughs> because most of the time I'm, I'm wanting to do something that has something to do with me. But there are the seeds of wanting to serve in all of us, I think. Yeah, I think it's a natural inclination to want to be of service. But for that and... to take one over, like, wow. Look at teachers. Teachers are the best examples, I guess, or most obvious in terms of the spiritual path. But it seemed like they were consumed. I mean, Suzuki Roshi, our own teacher, Gurdjieff, obviously. I mean, they just lived for the work. But, you know, we're talking about spiritual teachers, which is it's certainly true. But you could look at elementary school teachers, too. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> they get paid jack. They buy their own school supplies. They put up with the parents. The classes are too big. If you've ever known a teacher, you know, they got a lot of crap to deal with. They work long hours for not very much pay. And many of them feel very passionate about serving those children because it's so obvious what the children need. If you see a child, it's really obvious what they need, especially if you're trained and you have some capacity to provide that. When you see a child who needs something and you know how to give it, it kind of pulls it right out of you. Uh, I think there's a principle in that. I mean, I've had that experience with teaching glassblowing. And this goes back to that quote about when a man is full up with an idea, then he uses language in a way, and obviously it applies to women too, right? That is beyond his usual means. I've had the experience of teaching glassblowing classes where a student asked to see a certain technique that is like a technique I'm not that good at myself. I can, I can do it sometimes, maybe not always. And I'm, I'm certainly not the best at it, but I'm here in class. They want to see it. And so there's a certain necessity that's created. And that necessity pulls something out that is beyond me because I've had the experience of being asked to do that and being a little nervous going into it and then having it work perfectly. Far better than if I did it at home with no one around, right? It doesn't happen every day, but I've definitely had that experience. So 
there's something about a necessity. The necessity creates, it pulls something from the teacher, you know, or from someone who's maybe not a teacher in quotes, but who's in the position to offer something. You know, if there is a necessity, you kind of provide it. When you hear stories of people talking of sacrifices they've done or heroic rescues that people have done, it's very common when they're interviewed afterwards. Why did you run into that building and pull the child? It's like, it was just the thing to do. It was the obvious thing to do. I was the one to do it. There was no one else around or it was just necessary. So I think there is definitely something in us that intuits when something's really necessary. Now, we're not always confronted with dramatic situations like a burning house that we have to rescue people from, or even a child who has a need that we can meet. I mean, it's not always that dramatic. So I think a lot of times we can brush it off. But probably if you're sensitive, you go around just seeing need all the time everywhere. I sort of get that sense from things that my own teacher said and that I've heard other teachers say. It's like, You just get into a space. Congratulations, you're enlightened. Now everything you see is shit that needs your help. (laughs) Uh, So I I think it's true that we have a natural, some kind of natural sense of, of necessity that's present around us. We still have to make a living. We still have to tend to our own needs. How do you balance that? That's one of those dilemmas to be resolved. That's incarnating, that's embodying teaching. Is like when you're confronted with those dilemmas and you have to make a choice maybe between helping person A and person B, how do you resolve that? The rubber hits the road. Let's talk about art some more, okay? More from Robert Henry. I just want to keep talking about Robert Henry because he's so great. It says, I am certain that we do deal in an unconscious way with another dimension than the well-known three. It does not matter much to me now if it is the fourth dimension or what its number is, but I know that deep in us, there is always a grasp of proportions which exist over and through the obvious three, and it is by this power of super-proportioning that we reach the inner meaning of things. That's just what we're talking about. A piece of sculpture, a painting, or the gesture of a hand may have all the simple measurements. But the artist may have so handled these as to make us apprehend quite others. The Sphinx is but a demonstration of this. The great Greek and Chinese art, and in fact art everywhere and at all times, has to greater or less degree demonstrated this. Everywhere there are glimmers of it in all art, in all expression. Isadora Duncan who is perhaps one of the greatest masters of gesture the world has ever seen, carries us through a universe in a single movement of her body. Her hand, alone held aloft, becomes a shape of infinite significance. Yet her gesture, in fact, can only be the stretch of arm or the stride of a normal human body. And that's manifestation of higher ideal, something infinite, a gesture of the hand, which obviously I'm not doing, but the right gesture of a hand can have infinite significance. He's talking about Isadora Duncan, famous dancer, but what if our activity had infinite significance? What could we do 
as ordinary people, not on a stage. What can we do that would be a gesture of infinite significance that would have ordinary three-dimensional measurements that you could apply to it, but that expresses something that comes in uh, from a higher dimension that that manifests in that moment? I think that's what we're called to do in spiritual work. What we're called to do and that eventually will be done through us by some force that we don't really have control over, ultimately, but we can create obstacles and we can resist it. But that's, I think, a description of the ultimate human state, to be able to manifest something from a higher dimension into physical reality, whether it's through a particular gesture or some other creative expression. One of my considerations is that I feel obligated to make connections with people. Maybe not every day, but just to be out there, whether I'm in the deli or the grocery store, anywhere. Because I never know how long it's been since that person that I'm trying to connect with has had a connection with another human being. Especially now with the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah. With that separation, it's a good way to bear witness in this world to other people and to make them feel considered, but just to be noticed, maybe made to feel, be felt important. Empower people. Empowers people, yes. Yeah. And that's what, a, what an incredible thing to do, to empower other people. That's a great practice. I haven't experienced this not being an artist. But for you, Bandu, do you have creative impulses that you feel need to be brought into manifestation? As an artist, do those kind of ideas occur to you? And what are those about? I mean, is it about anything in particular? Well, I think there are themes as to why I make certain things that, are, that become evident over time myself. And maybe that's true of most artists. Some of what I want to do is just very simple. And a lot of what I spend my time doing every day, especially this time of year, is not what I would consider high art. It does contribute beauty to people's lives. It contributes some degree of delight for people's lives. It contributes some degree of money into my pocketbook, which enables me to keep doing what I'm doing. But then there are pieces, the bigger things that I do, the more elaborate things. Often it is an idea that manifests and it's not like I literally have a voice whispering in my ear, but it's kind of like that, just in the sense like, this is what I'm supposed to do now. And an experience that many artists have is that you don't always know whether it's going to be a great thing or not. And it's maybe not supposed to be a great thing, but it's what you're supposed to do. Or you might be slightly wrong in perceiving what it is you're supposed to do. You may not have refined your sensitivity to your inner voice to an extent where your perception of what you're being told to do is pure, because often it's a very subtle voice. I think it was Paul McCartney, maybe one of the Beatles. He was being interviewed and someone said, you know, your last album, people didn't think that was as good as your previous albums. And he said, look, when you're doing this creative work, You just have to do what comes up. You don't know ahead of time if this is going to be a great album. You just know this is what you have to do. And sometimes it's not great. And sometimes it is. 
And the great ones, he didn't say this, but I think it's common knowledge maybe among artists, is that the great ones make up for the ones that aren't great. Sometimes you have to do the ones that aren't great to get to the ones that are great. So you just need to keep working. That's a principle that's talked about by many artists. You just keep working and you do the thing that comes up for you to do. It may or may not be great. You do the thing and the people in your life may not be patient with you. But my experience is that it's sometimes very clear what needs to happen. And the things that we're given to do pretty often, no one else is going to do it. What I'm thinking about now is how some Zen artists create these calligraphies. They just, it seems, wait for a moment where... Where they become a hollow bamboo, as Osho was saying. Where they become a hollow bamboo. And then they do this thing. Do you think that when something comes from that space of just utter creativity, where you're out of the way and something comes through you, do you think that... People recognize that or are oblivious to it. I mean, have you had the experience of doing that yourself? And when you do that, do people look at that and say, well, that's special in some way, or that communicates objectively? Or do you feel like you might do something like that, just like your Zen master might do this kind of calligraphy, and nobody really appreciates it, but you know? Well, I think it's a mix. I think all of those things are possible scenarios. I think there are unrecognized geniuses. And there are people who are not geniuses at all that someone else has decided is a genius and they can make money off of promoting this person as a genius. So you've got this spectrum. One end, you've got unrecognized genius. At the other end, you've got completely fabricated genius. And in between, you've got this whole span of things that show up. And I think most artists have had some experiences at different places on that spectrum, right? You want to have the experience of being a genius, meaning that you're kind of not there at all. Experience of not being there, of being that hollow bamboo. That's the experience you want. And sometimes those experiences actually lead to financial remuneration, which enables you to really successfully continue to do what you're doing. And sometimes it doesn't, but you kind of have to do it anyway. And sometimes you have to do a mix of designing postcards when really you want to be making murals? Well, two things. The principle I heard is you don't have to do great things in the world, do things greatly. As an artist, I've been in the zone and done pure work, and it doesn't necessarily get out into the world. And if it does, it doesn't necessarily resonate, depending on your population, your context. You know, there's a lot of unsung artists like Bondi was just saying, but those are two different things. I can do my best art greatly, and that doesn't mean anything to the outside world. But it gets back to the first thing that Bonder said, which is to get back into the body. By definition, being in that zone, in that timeless space of creativity, the artist or myself is automatically in the body. So, I mean, that's the uh, you know fruition of that goal, and that's the success. And it's as pure as I'm going to get. It's as pure as the artist is going to get. And whether the outside world recognizes it um, is a totally other dynamic. I guess I'm saying the saving grace for artists, musicians is once you're in that zone, which is exactly where children are, the best work, the most spiritual and the most uh, channeled work shows up. 
it's as good as I'm going to get. Uh, whether it's good enough, you know, as a material, that's the beauty of it. What came up for me is also not to be identified with the outcome. And so I was just thinking about mandalas. Oh, yeah? sand painting mandalas, yeah. Sand paintings, yeah, or the mandalas, what the Buddhists do for Ship weeks it. and weeks. But there's no individual attached to it. And then they're destroying this whole thing. Yeah, It's like, oh my gosh, or sand castles or ice sculptures. Amazing art. And I really, I like this approach so much. And it's for me the highest art form in a way to create something and destroy it in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's something very poignant about impermanence. It's one of the key, yeah. key elements of existence in, in this human experience. You know, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. Part of that human experience, one of the defining factors of the human experience is mortality, which is why it's so stupid when people try to come up with these technological solutions for immortality. Like, we're going to scan your brain into a computer, and then you will get to live forever, unless, of course, someone pulls the plug on the computer. But we figured out how to make you live forever, right? you know, or we're working on it, right? I don't particularly like the idea of dying. The organic system is completely not based on the desire to die. It's based on the desire to live. So we have strong instinctual desire to keep living. But mortality and impermanence is baked in to our experience. And it's supposed to be baked into our experience. I mean, there's such richness to the human experience because of impermanence. Things that come and go. And the impermanence of our own self is part of the mystery of the human experience. I seem to be this self that seems to me to have some kind of permanence, but that's just how I've defined it. That's not really the reality. And yet there's something about the experience and, and there is something to me that is eternal, I think, you know, so says the legend, <laughs> we have something eternal. But that dichotomy between desire for permanence, for solidity, and being at peace with impermanence. Okay, this is from another, another Japanese source. I certainly love the Japanese perspective on art, things I've read about it. Really very beautiful and elegant. And this is actually about craft, as opposed to art, which... I'm not going to try to figure out the difference tonight, if there is one. Quote, the fact that in general, practical objects of wholesome and natural beauty are those intended for daily uses suggests that it is this particular circumstance that imparts those qualities to them. Just as men who work hard are usually healthy, so objects that fulfill the daily functions of life are necessarily wholesome. Conversely, a lack of strength and sanity usually characterizes objects that are excessively embellished or too complicated in form, since they are unfit for daily use. Utility does not permit unsoundness or frailty 
for between use and beauty, there is a close relation. Utility demands faithfulness in objects. It does not condone human self-indulgence. In creating an object intended for practical use, the maker does not push himself to the foreground or even, for that matter, to the surface. With such objects, self-assertion and error, if present at all, are reduced to a minimum. This may be one reason why useful goods are beautiful. It's from a book called The Unknown Craftsman, A Japanese Insight into Beauty by Suetsu Yanagi. But you know, form follows function, as someone said. Clearly, this applies to us. Hopefully, we get some wisdom as we age, right? Read some quotes. Someone said, beautiful young people are an accident of nature, but beautiful old people are a work of art. And I think that's true. Old people who are beautiful are beautiful because they are functional. They have a functional quality to them, to apply this quote to people. But it's true, that which is useful is free of unnecessary self-indulgent embellishments. I think that's something that we can aspire to, you know, ourselves, to become works of art in some sense, free of self-indulgent embellishments. And just to be present as something useful or what is at hand. 